Hi, everybody, and welcome to Urban Green's podcast, Building Tomorrow, where we bring you conversations with climate solvers. Every day we meet people who make a big difference in the built environment and are moving us closer to a low carbon future. And we want you to hear their stories. My name is Ellen Honigstock. I'm the Senior Director of Education here at Urban Green. And today we're proud to introduce our guest, Dr. Melissa Checker, who is the Hagedorn Professor of Urban Studies at Queens College and Professor of Anthropology at the CUNY Graduate Center. I'm also excited to introduce my co-host today, a longtime member of the Urban Green Programs Committee, Amy Martman, who is the Director of Sustainability at SBM Management Services. Thank you both so much for being with us here today. So Amy, I'm gonna turn it over to you for the first question. Yeah, great. Hi everyone and welcome. Um, Melissa, can you please introduce yourself? Um, tell us a little bit about how you got to this point in your career. Sure. I want to say, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I, re I really appreciate the opportunity um, to talk about the book and, and the issues that I wrote it about. Um, so I am a professor of urban studies and anthropology at uh, Queens College and the CUNY Graduate Center. And I got my doctorate in anthropology, cultural anthropology. And I um, came to study environmental justice during uh, the course of my uh, path to degree, for, to my dissertation degree, but it wasn't something I expected to be studying uh, when I got into my PhD program. I had, when I was in college, um, I had been very concerned about issues of homelessness and affordable housing. And uh, after college, I was working for a low-income housing developer, nonprofit housing developer in uh, California. And I, at the time, kind of saw environmentalism as being something that was maybe about recycling, uh, about wilderness preservation. I didn't really see it as, as being a category that dealt with the issues of poverty and homelessness that I was interested in. And it wasn't until I was doing uh, scouting around for a topic for my master's thesis that my advisor said to me, you know, you should take a look at this new movement. They're calling it environmental justice and it encompasses all of these social justice and racial justice issues under this kind of rubric of, of the environment. And um, so I, he had suggested that I go to Williamsburg at the time where they, the community, um, it was a, a Latino community, a Hasidic community and African-American community and they had come together to fight an in, in incinerator that was slated for their neighborhood. This was back in the 90s before Williamsburg was what it is today. But um, at that time, there were a lot of people of color living there, very low income households, and they had sort of always been at odds with each other competing over resources. But for the sake of fighting this incinerator, they had come together and kind of laid down their arms, um, so to speak. And they were talking about how they all breathe the same air. So in that sense, the, the environment became a basis for them to really work together. And then they went on to um, work on some housing issues together and schooling issues. So, so they kind of found that common ground through the environmental justice. And I thought, well, that was really interesting. So I kind of stuck with that topic through my dissertation research and through my career. That's that's so interesting. Thank you. So the reason we have gathered here today 
um, Melissa wrote a really interesting book called The Sustainability Myth, Environmental Gentrification and the Politics of Justice. Uh, it's an academic book, but given that, it's very engaging. It's uh, based on stories and it's um, really the history of real estate development over the past 60 years or so. And to me, some of the most interesting aspects were, you know, I grew up in and around New York City and I remember a lot of the events that you describe, but I didn't remember them in detail and I did, definitely didn't see them with any kind of through line. And you really make, you make a lot of really interesting points by connecting what I saw as disparate events and I also appreciate that the book is very constructively critical of sustainability policy and environmentalists in general. And it's something we don't see a lot and it's an important message. So with that, can you tell us about your approach to this book? Sure. Um, well, I, I, I became interested in it because I had studied environmental justice activism, like I, I said, um, and those were more instances of communities that were trying to kind of protect themselves from toxic facilities. Um, so a lot of these were um, communities of color, low income, and they were surrounded by toxic facilities and polluting entities. And they were trying to either get moved or, or get some of these entities to clean up. Um, and so that was kind of my world at that point was environmental justice. And I, I came to New York, I, I moved back to New York in 2007. And at that time, there were just these green buildings going up and sustainability. Bloomberg had um, launched his, his Plan YC 2030, his big sustainability plan for New York City. And that was kind of the buzz, all the talk, not just in New York, but in other major cities around the world as well. And the activists that I worked with, the environmental justice activists, had been talking about sustainability since since like the late 90, 1990s at that point. And they really talked about it as, you know, something that was about um, economic, social, and environmental uh, equity um, and sustainability sort of along those three lines. So I was very excited to hear that sustainability was sort of now becoming this mainstream idea. And I wanted to see, was that going to serve the, the goals of environmental justice or not? So that's kind of um, what I wanted to study was where did sustainability intersect with environmental justice? It's interesting. And for the listeners who should definitely read this book, your findings weren't predetermined. You really went into it with questions to see what you can find. So Amy, do you want to talk about some of the content in the book? Yeah. So the first half of your book is structured on the different types of environmental gentrification, specifically green gentrification, which is really the addition of trees and parks and green space, right, in order to kind of help revitalize the second is industrial, which is related to zoning and rezoning. And then the brown gentrification, the cleaning up and redevelopment of brownfields or polluted sites. But each comes from a place of good intention from those that are kind of making those initiatives happen. But as with the examples in the book, you illustrate the real impacts of these. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why it's important that you made these distinctions? Yes. Yeah, so what I saw is in the era that I was studying, which was from about 2007 to like about 2019, was 
As sustainability was really ramping up in New York City and becoming this sort of ubiquitous idea for real estate development, real estate development itself, especially high-end development, was also really ramping up. So it was an era of lots of rezonings um, and lots of kind of neighborhood makeovers. Um, and those were really uh, bringing in a lot of real estate business to New York City, but a lot of this was high-end development. So it was catering towards bringing in new upwardly mobile professionals. So a lot of the green initiatives that were, go were going along coinciding with this uh, real estate development. And I felt I, what I saw was that uh, it was really, again, uh, benefiting uh, wealthy, upwardly mobile New Yorkers more than it was benefiting low-income communities. And so gentrification and sustainability were happening simultaneously and they were, they weren't, it wasn't like one was causing the other, um, but um, they were really going hand in hand. And the effect of that, unfortunately, was that neighborhoods were becoming unaffordable for again, for longtime residents who were tended to be lower income. So you would have all of these great environmental improvements that communities really wanted, like new parks, uh, bike lanes, um, you know, uh, waterfront access, all of these things that these communities had been asking for for a long time, but they came with new high-rise condos and upscale stores that, that weren't um, accessible to, to the long-term residents. So there was a kind of uh, mismatch there so that people were not able to enjoy a lot of those environmental benefits because they, they couldn't live in their neighborhoods anymore. And then the other thing, the other kind of important piece of this, I think that I found is that as neighborhoods, like as these old industrial waterfronts like Williamsburg, Greenpoint, Gowanus, Long Island City, parts of Harlem, as these areas kind of turned over and became gentrified, there were fewer places to put heavy industry in New York City, which still needs some heavy industry. We need our waste transfer stations. We need, you know, some just industrial businesses. We need uh, sewer treatment plants. So all of that kind of more noxious stuff was getting moved out of those gentrifying areas and concentrated into the into the waterfront areas where there wasn't gentrification happening. So it there was kind of two things. One, neighborhoods were becoming more unaffordable based, you know, with this kind of rubric of sustainability that was sort of glossing over that process. And then um, people were people who lived in neighborhoods that were not gentrifying were having to deal with more waste facilities. So interesting. Um, yeah, that's what I meant about the through line. Like I saw all those things happen, but I never connected all those dots. So um, who did you write this book for? Who do you want to read this book? Well, I, I wrote it, you know, in my mind, I was um, writing it for my undergraduates. So really trying to kind of break things down a little bit and explain to them the, the real history in as plain of terms as I could. And I was hoping I had this kind of idea that undergrads and their parents, you know, they might bring it home to their family members or their caregivers uh, and tell them to, to read it, you know, so kind of an audience that was interested, maybe um, had somewhat of an education level, but not necessarily, you didn't have to be like a, 
a graduate student or something. <laughs> Melissa, in the second half of your book, it goes into some specific case studies, but it's really told from the activist perspective. I think a lot of times we see that advocates or activists are portrayed as troublemakers or getting in the way of progress. Um, can you tell us why that's an important perspective for this issue and why you wrote about it that way? Yes, I think I see activists a little differently. I I see them as really being extremely knowledgeable about what's going on in their own neighborhoods. And so, again, when we, when we say activists, that means these the people I worked with are are local to the neighborhood where they're um, at, that they're advocating for. So they've lived there for a long time. They've seen a lot of things. They know intimately uh, what it smells like, how bad the noise is, you know, what times of day all of those things are happening. They know where the industries are. They know what, you know, one factory used to be and it turned into another factory, not in all cases, but in some cases. They know how many kids, you know, maybe anecdotally, they know how many kids have asthma. So they really are very knowledgeable about what's going on locally in a way that perhaps regulatory agencies or government agencies aren't as as knowledgeable because they, they know it so well. And they, you know, are also um, not afraid to speak up and try and work to improve their, you know, the things that they see as being wrong with their neighborhoods. And, and I think it's a really important perspective. So for example, if you were talking about like a big development that they were, you know, discussing for one neighborhood, well, people know that, um, they know about how much the sewers overflow when it rains. So they know where those little street floods are happening. So they might, realize that if you're going to put in a, a, a big new condo development, you're going to also need to improve the sewer lines or you're going to need to improve the you know, street flooding. They know that schools are getting overcrowded. So they really kind of um, know so well what's going on. The problem is that they're not always listened to. And so I was really trying to represent um, from their perspective what it's like when all of these um, development ideas are are happening and being discussed. Yeah, you really made the case that it was so incredibly frustrating for them. And all the knowledge that you, you just mentioned just didn't have an outlet and wasn't, you know, wasn't, there was no uptake in the ways that they understood was necessary for their neighborhood. And it was, it, it was somewhat visceral. And I'm wondering, you know, having been embedded in, in with these teams and with this work for so long, what better engagement would look like? Well, I think, you know, I think um, uh, really listening and, you know, I guess in this case, at least, knowledge wasn't always power. So uh, they knew a ton. And, and the, again, if these people, some of them who had been working on environmental issues for many years, they, they knew a lot about uh, technical things. They knew a lot about pollutants and... Um, you know, and how the pollutants relate to asthma, or they know about a lot about climate change and and sea level rise, and so it's really like tapping into that knowledge and um, being open to listening and letting you know, working with communities, um, having them sort of taking the approach of of that they're co-directing these projects because again, they're going to affect 
um, local neighborhoods, people living in the local neighborhoods a lot. So really allowing them to kind of um, to um, engage in a substantive and meaningful way that actually changes perhaps the project itself. Right. And, and you made a lot of good points or you, you told a lot of good stories about actually they were bad stories because they really showed how uh, these activists who were doing a lot of this work as a labor of love, they weren't getting paid for it. And there were consultants coming in who were getting paid for things and not, um, you know, not paying these activists for their information, but requiring their participation. And I, you know, that, that must have been, I, I was going to say it must have been hard to watch, but it sounds like you were becoming part of the activist community by the end of the book. And, um, you know, I wonder how, um, I think I'm seeing things change in that way, but I'm wondering if you are as well. Yeah, I, I am. So, I mean, I, I guess I should explain that I, um, as a cultural anthropologist, my primary method is participant observation, which means I, I don't just kind of watch things going on. I really try to get in there and participate so I can have some better sense of what it actually feels like um, in you know, the, the kind of community I was studying was a community of environmental justice activists in New York City. So I, I, I had to really, um, at, you know, work with them alongside them and, and engage as much as I could in the same activities so that I would have this sense of those ups and downs that they were facing and what it felt like when they were disappointed or when there were victories. And so I really tried to Kind of pitch in and help out with these groups as much as i could that's um you know a, a very long-standing methodology for for an anthropologist so and i did you know really go to a lot of meetings just like they did <laughs> um i probably went to maybe half as many as they went to actually but you know i really got that sense of what it was like to you know the feeling of um them sort of seeing things in this kind of history short-term at least historical perspective of how many meetings they had been to where they had discussed the same issues and there was never any outcome and the frustration that they felt when they would be asked for their input over and over again, you know, um, to come to a, a public hearing or to participate in a working group or steering committee or all of the different ways that they were pulled in in the name of community engagement, which is great except that their point of view wasn't really being taken seriously. So they, so I think that there are better ways to, again, to engage communities by actually really listening and being open. And also, you know, their time is valuable. And they, most of these are people who are involved in these grassroots groups, which means they're volunteering their time after work. And then they're going to these meetings at night, sometimes until very late. and you know, everybody, it would be like, they would say to me a lot, everyone else at the meeting, you know, the people who represent the city, the people who represent the elected officials, the people who represent nonprofits, everybody else was being paid to be there, except for the community organizations or the people from the community. And it's kind of, um, there's a sort of attitude sometimes that just because they're inviting the community, that's a huge favor to them because they're being invited in to have a seat at the table. But when that seat is not really doing them any good, then they start to really resent the time. 
You wrote this book in uh, 2020. Since then, the New York State climate law has passed. How have things changed since then? Well, I think that this is kind of an amazing time, actually, to be doing this work. Um, I've never, you know, not like I've been around forever, but the, it seems like the opportunities are enormous um, and, and possibly unprecedented in terms of the amount of funding that's going into infrastructure issues, energy transition, a lot of things that the people I work with, the activists I work with have been talking about again for a really long time. And suddenly there's federal money, there's state money, there's city money to really accomplish a lot of these things that, that um, people feel are essential. And there's also a, an official kind of institutional recognition of the importance of environmental justice and the importance of evenly distributing the benefits of green transition. So uh, there's a lot of talk about that on a level that I haven't seen before and a lot of efforts being made to really make sure that the benefits go to low-income communities and communities that have been historically disadvantaged. There are some bumps in the road, I think, in terms of how it's playing out so far and that, you know, it's not entirely smooth. There's been controversies around um, the maps that are being, you know, they're creating these maps of which are the disadvantaged communities that are going to be receiving extra benefits or that are going to be targeted for benefits from like the CLCPA and, and some of that infrastructure money. And there's, you know, some people are not so happy with the way the maps worked out. And, and again, um, there was community participation, but it was, um, not necessarily representative representative of a wide array of communities, and so some people felt like they didn't have the opportunity to um, to have input into those maps and into how the communities were being designated. So, expectedly, it's controversial, but I think I, I have a lot of hope that um, it can work out. Again, you know, I think it's really about paying attention and getting a lot of perspectives um, from people who are really living in these areas, living on the ground and listening to them. And they, they really know what the priorities should be. And, and they have lots of ideas about how this can all play out in efficient and effective ways that are equitable. And so it's really letting them um, have their say. Melissa, thank you so much. That was such a great conversation. It was exactly the conversation I was hoping we would have today. Thank you, it was my pleasure. And Amy, thank you so much for being my co-host today. Thank you, it was fun. All the resources that we mentioned are linked in the description of this episode. And I'd like to thank Urban Green staff for their assistance and our members and sponsors for their support. If you'd like to become a member, please visit urbangreencouncil.org. And thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing so that you don't miss out on any of the great conversations to come. See you next time.